Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8 this morning. That is a passage of Scripture that perhaps rings a bell in your mind. It is one that we committed to memory a couple of months ago in our corporate time together. Over the past several weeks, and really since the beginning of the year, we've spoken a lot about submission and rebellion. Now, this was not necessarily by design. It was not that I stepped into the new year anticipating this, but it was most certainly, though not by my design, clearly by the design of the Lord. He had a message for this church and for those in this church, the Lord does. And it's been a message directed toward those, as we've seen over the last several weeks, that have an ear to hear. And because you're in the seats today or in any given Sunday does not necessarily mean that you have an ear to hear. You might be hearing the words, but you might not be listening, right? You might not have an ear to hear. I know that these have been messages of deep importance to me. I hope they have been to you as well as we've gone through the beginning of this year. Well, today we kind of jump out of that frying pan of rebellion and submission and such, and we jump into the fires of another really important virtue in the Christian life, and one which is not easy. Another one, may I say, which is not easy. We speak today of contentment. It's a very difficult topic for humans, very difficult topic for Christians, very difficult topic, particularly so perhaps in 21st century Western culture. Contentment is not just a topic that touches the nature of sin and of righteousness as it relates to the possessions which we have in this world. Much more than that, contentment lies at the very heart of any number of other problems that we can experience in our lives. Contentment can lie at the heart of lack of stability, emotional stability, physical stability. Contentment can lie at the heart of double-mindedness. It can lie at the heart of anxiety. It can lie at the heart of aimlessness in life. It can lie at the heart of, of various bouts with depression, with confusion. And contentment in regard to the physical things of this life, money and objects, is a part of a much bigger scriptural idea. And that bigger scriptural idea really drives to the very center element of even our salvation. When one accepts Christ as Savior, their relationship to the things of this world changes. I, I, I say intend, I almost said intends to change, and in one sense it is intended to change, but in the heavenlies it changes. You go from darkness to light. You go from a citizen of this world to a citizen of the world that is to come. You are delivered from the power of the prince of the darkness of the air, and you are placed into the kingdom of light. When this happens, what once might be considered the very definition of our lives, those things that consumed us, those things which defined us, whether that be the sins, as we see those lists of sins in the Bible, after which Paul says uh, uh, that they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea there not being that if you commit one of those sins, you do not inherit the kingdom of God, but much rather that if you are defined by those things, if that is who you are, if that is the essence of your identity, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whether we talk about those sins that, that define us or whether we talk simply about those material wants and loves that define us, that was who we were. But that fundamentally changed the moment that you step into Christ, buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. Thus, those things which once defined our lives actually grow in us to be seen as a hindrance to the life that we now desire. What an interesting thing. That the very things that once defined us are now the things that hinder us. That the very things of once we craved are now the things of which, as Paul would say in Romans 6, we are now ashamed. And this is natural. This is normal. This is, this is the new birth. This is not to say, as we know from our study in Ecclesiastes, which we did a couple of years ago now, for those of you that have been following along, 
that the things of this earth and the consolations and the enjoyments of the bodies, the food, the drink, the entertainment, the ambition, that these things are sinful or wrong in themselves, they are not. It is only as they seek to compete with the things of God in Christ that they take their place as something which presents either sin or a temptation unto sinfulness. We look at the litany of the things in this world that would seek to strip from us our closeness with Christ, that would seek to strip from us our contentment in Christ, and it cannot but be acknowledged that the things of this earth can often be a hindrance. To that end, I want us to go in a little bit of a different direction with these verses today. You're familiar with the verses, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. You're familiar with the verses, but I'd like to go a bit deeper. Because when we talk about contentment, we all know we should be content. You don't need me to stand here and tell you you should be content. And we all recognize various things that might strip from us our contentment. But do we understand the interplay between our bodies and the material world in which we live and the spirit, the spiritual world into which we aspire, and how it is that we can properly relate the things of this world to the things of the spirit so that we are not just trying to put a band-aid over our feelings of discontentment, cutting off any and every joy in this life in order to try to, to, to pursue some element of contentment in just the lack of anything else but God. Can we find a way to actually solve the problem of discontentment in our hearts? To that end, our actual discussion in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8 is going to come toward the end. And instead, at the beginning, I'm going to lay some foundation work. And it's going to actually be keyed in to the same passage of Scripture that I preached on with, uh, just before the New Year, the New Year's message that we found in Mark chapter 7. Perhaps you recall that message or you recall that passage. We're going to step back into it. It, it was also the foundation of the memory work that we had for January, Mark 15, uh, Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11. That passage was in, is the same passage as the Mark passage, only a little bit more succinct, which is why I chose it for the memory work. But in Mark chapter 7, Beginning in verse 14, the Bible says this, And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man, outside of a man, that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, the disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats." And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and defile the man. May I add discontentment to that? Discontentment does not come from the things around us. It comes from the interplay of the things around us with something that is inside of our hearts. It is, it is as my life interacts with those things that something within my heart is going to bring about in me a contentment or a discontentment, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with the things I'm interacting with, necessarily. That's what I want us to see initially in our time together today. In that message in Mark 7, on our final Sunday in 2019, I preached on this passage where we, we recalled to our minds that the things which truly defile a man come from within, not from without. We see that list here in Mark chapter 7. 
And the exhortation on that day was to make sure that we are balanced, not heightening external things at the expense of our hearts, not excusing our sinful actions as being a result only of external influences, right? The devil made me do it. Or um, it's just because of the things, the temptations that are around me, not excusing the fact that there's something wrong inside of me, but acknowledging that if we want to be right with God, we need to root our growth in our hearts and inside out. Religion, at its core, uh, has, has a framework of externals. Religion is very valuable, but only if the heart is in the right place. Religion, without the heart being in the right place, are nothing but externals. And they seek thus to influence people from the outside in. And that just does not work. It will never foster a relationship with God. We are believers, thus our relationship with God starts in the inside and works its way out. Christianity is an inside-out relationship, not an outside-in set of rules or a framework of practice. External things certainly can influence, can't they? But sinful actions are seated in our hearts. To this end, it is not the external things themselves that are necessarily evil. Some are. But only how we interplay with them in our hearts. In verse 19 of Mark 7, Jesus speaks of food, which doesn't enter into a man's heart, but into his belly where it's processed. It's used to energize the body, and the remainder is removed from the body in an entirely natural and physical process that our Lord has created. This, in, this physical process in its entirety is not inherently wrong, right? It's by no means wrong. It's entirely physical process can be, in fact, exceedingly enjoyable, can't it? This entire physical process of eating is something which is wholly material. It's entirely earthly. It has no spiritual bearing on me and yet can truly be enjoyable, can be a true consolation and even a benefit to me spiritually. I know that it's harder for me to preach on a Sunday night if I don't put a little food into my stomach first. I know that it might even be harder sometimes for me to receive a spiritual truth or a rebuke if I'm hungry and tired. I've told you before in various messages on the family, wives, you want a good strategy if there's something wrong at home and your husband just came home, it would be a good idea to feed him before you lay on him the problems of the day. That At least it helps me. I can process things a lot easier if I'm not tired and hungry while I'm trying to process them. So there, there can be a benefit, right? There can be a, there are material or spiritual benefits even to the material there, but the process itself is entirely material. It's entirely physical. It's entirely earthly. It is not the interaction with my material or a material thing in this world that, that, that is wrong. Just because something is in this world does not mean we aren't allowed to enjoy it. Just because something has an effect upon the body or mind doesn't mean that that intrinsically makes it sinful. It does not form a sufficient basis for us to impose upon that thing an intrinsic moral quality. It is only in how I interact with that material thing or how it interacts with me upon which then I can impose a measure of morality. And if this sounds kind of strange and vague, and Pastor, I don't know where you're going with it, let me illustrate. I'm going to give you a couple. And we're going to start with this one of food. Food is a wonderful thing. It's a thing which God has given us to enjoy. In fact, we've already studied this concept within the context of Paul's warning to the church here in 1 Timothy about the nature of the last days. Recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul was describing the last days, and one of the things he describes about the perilous times of the last days in, in verses 3 through 5, he says that in those last days there will be a forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing 
to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So Paul warns against a time of seduction and a time of confusion in the world where men would depart from the faith, where they would give heed to seducing spirits and to doctrines of demons. He, he furthermore describes it as a time where their culture would forbid marriage and where their culture would forbid the eating of meats. At that time, when I preached that message, within the context, we connected the dots between these ideological concepts and that which is becoming more prevalent in our culture today through cultural Marxism and the progressive left. The forbidding to marry and the refusal, the forbidding to eat of meats or the command to abstain from meats. And within this, Paul tells us, but much to the contrary, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. There is no sinful food which on its face should be simply by virtue of its substance directly refused. And now as I say that, there could be arguments about things that go well beyond just the spirit of the text here. But as a general rule, that's, that's, that's the point. The point is that food has been given to man Man needs food to survive. It's a biological necessity. And on top of that, there are any number of foods which are amazing and delicious and truly a joy to consume. And thank the Lord for that. Now, that food is doing little more for me other than feeding my body, right? It's not, uh, it's giving me energy to function. It's affording my body strength. It's affording my mind clarity. Depending on the day, it might afford my taste buds great joy and delight. I eat a delicious steak. It provides for my body. It provides for my mind. It delights my soul. Everything is good in that. None of this is in itself wrong. Taste buds grant mankind a tremendous consolation in the process of eating, don't they? They allow us to enjoy eating, and you would be hard-pressed to convince me that God has not designed it to be so. But eating can become a sin to me, can't it? It can. Eating engages the physical and the material parts of me. And while that which goeth into me does not defile a man, it's not inherently sinful, when that which goeth into me is combined with my heart, with the things that are in my heart. The interplay between that which is going into me and what is in my heart can produce something sinful. It can. So delicious food, when paired with intemperance in my heart, a lack of self-control, a selfishness or a desire becomes gluttony. And thus, the food that has entered into me, when paired with that which cometh out of me, in my heart, makes it sin to me as I take it beyond its design, as I take it beyond what it affords me. The reaction of my intemperate heart has worked in me sin through that food. And my reaction to this can be twofold. I can simply say, well, the, re the, 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 the interplay between delicious foods and my sinful heart create, uh, br brings about a sin in me, the sin of gluttony through intemperance. Therefore, I'm just going to deny myself food, delicious foods. And that might work as far as you not getting overweight. But here's my question to you. Does that really solve the problem in your heart? Does just taking away something physical, which in and of itself is not sin, does just taking away that physical thing cause the thing in your heart to go away? Now, it causes it not to be made manifest, perhaps, in that way, but has it gone away? Not necessarily. It's only kind of a band-aid for the problem, isn't it? I'm, I'm, just kind of, I'm just kind of pretending like the problem's not there by avoiding the thing that kicks into my heart, that, that, that reveals the sin in my heart. How often do we do this, believers? How often do we fall out of balance by seeing an interplay between something in this world, which is not necessarily sinful, and our own hearts, and because we sin through it, instead of actually dealing with the sin in our hearts, we just try to put a band-aid over it by avoiding the thing. 
and then it crops up over here, and then it crops up over here, and it crops up over here, and I'm playing whack-a-mole now, right? I'm, I'm, I'm whacking each sin as it comes up, and I'm denying myself this and this and that and that and that, and, and, and I'm not happy because I'm denying everything, and no one's happy with me because they all feel bad either for me or because I'm, tell I'm telling them to deny everything because I have to deny everything, and I'm playing whack-a-mole with sin rather than say, wait a minute, what if, what if I could just, what if the thing in my heart could go away? What if I could deal with intemperance? What if I could fundamentally deal with the problem of intemperance in my heart so that when that food interplays with my heart, that which comes out is not intemperate? And then I can enjoy that food. And then I don't have to just put, a, put my hand over that and, and, and watch it pop up somewhere else. And then, oh, intemperance over here now. And I put my hand over that and then it pops up here. And now I'm stuck and I've got my foot over here and I'm trying to get everything. I'm trying to keep it all from popping up. And then it's this cycle of externalities. But I've never actually dealt with the problem in my heart. There may be a man next to me who can consume the same delicious meal but not feel any temptation unto intemperance in that regard. So he's able in the Lord to eat unto the satisfaction of the body without ever manifesting the sinful work of the flesh because he has, he, he has either dealt with or he doesn't have that propensity unto intemperance. Well, let's consider one more example. Let's consider the example of competition, competitiveness. One person, a group of people competing against another group of people to achieve victory. Competition is something which humans enjoy both to engage in and to observe in others. Sporting events, academic efforts, political gamesmanship, and the like. These things are intriguing to us. They're enjoyable for us to watch. Humans enjoy watching competition, don't they? Many humans en enjoy engaging in competition. And competition itself is not wrong. It's something built into us. It's, it helps make us better. It's one of the most effective methods of self-improvement. It inspires us to achieve. It calls us to aspire unto greater things. It's deeply built into the way God made us. But competition can become sin to me, can't it? Competition engages the, the physical and the material parts of me. It engages the physical and material world around me. And while the act is not inherently sinful... When paired with that which comes out of my heart, it can become sinful. So competition, when paired with the sin of pride in my heart, can bring about within me envy, wrath, strife, an uncharitable spirit, that, that, that kind of cutthroat, dominant nature. And this is not the fault of competition itself but only the reaction of my envious, wrathful, or striving heart to the nature of competition. My children have really gotten into card games. We like to play Uno. And while my children love card games, and that card game is by no means wrong, simultaneously, the interplay between that card game and the hearts of my children regularly becomes sinful. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of envy. There's a lot of malice that pops up in my children's hearts when we play card games. Now, at their age, this is a good thing because it allows us to deal with it early, to deal with their heart. That's why we want competition in our home so that we can see those things crop up and we can help our children deal with them. It's not the card game itself that becomes a problem. It's when our children become angry because they, 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 they want to win. They become malicious because they want to win. They become dominant. They, they uh, want to cheat, right? They want to cheat because they want to win. So they want to cut corners. These are things in their hearts. This has nothing to do with Uno. This has everything to do with what's happening in their hearts. It's the interplay between the physical and then what is in their hearts. It's not which, it's not which, which goeth into their hand that defiles the man. It's what comes out of their heart that defiles the man, right? We need to see this. This is not the fault of the competition itself. It's only the reaction of my heart to that competition. When I win, I can become uncharitable, whereas charity vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. 
I will instead glory in my victory rather at the expense of my competitor and that becomes sin to me. This is not the fault of the competition. It's the interplay of my sinful heart with the competition. The same can be said if I lose, right? So I can, I can exhibit sinful tendencies in winning. I can exhibit sinful tendencies in losing. I lose and it works in me wrath or strife or envy once again. Not the fault of the competition. It's the fault of the interplay between the physical thing that I'm doing and the sinful heart that is in me. And if all I say is, well, children, we're not going to play Uno anymore because you get angry, because you glory over your sibling, because uh, it causes fights. You know what I've done? All I've done is put a Band-Aid on a, on a gaping wound. All I've done is avoid, avoid the thing that stirs in them what is still going to be in their hearts, whether they play Uno or not. Right? It is still going to be there, whether they play Uno or not. So have I actually made any ground? Have I actually done anything valuable if I just remove the source of uh, the, 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 the object of, of the, uh, that, 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 that my sinful heart is using to bring about sin in me? Or should I solve the problem in the heart? And I say I loosely. Should I allow God to solve the problem in my heart? Now in our society, whether we like it or not, we are built upon a Judeo-Christian foundation. As such, even unbelievers in our society judge these many of the works of the flesh that the Bible speaks of to be wrong, to be sinful, right? A short list, by no means a comprehensive, li comprehensive list, is found in Galatians 5, 19-21. You perhaps know it well. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. And then he says here, and such like, right, of the which I told you before. I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And whilst our society is changing dramatically, right? The last 20 years have been incredible for societal change, negatively. Generally speaking, large portions of society still would regard many of these things as wrong, right? And the solution within the unbelieving world when the unbelieving world sees something in you that is wrong, and the unbelieving world assesses something to be wrong, the solution within the unbelieving world to that assessment is that you need to discipline and you need to avoid, right? You discipline your body or you avoid the thing. To avoid these things in this life, which activate that wrong, morally wrong thing, as the unbelieving world would say it, and so cause me to manifest something wrong. As long as you don't manifest that wrong thing, you're fine. As long as uh, it doesn't matter what's in your heart, as long as you don't actually go about the act of stealing something, you're good, right? You could want it, you could covet it, you could desire it, you could lust after it, uh, you, you could want to steal it, and all of that's fine, but when you steal it, that's a problem. So you discipline yourself to the line of society that says, I'm not going to steal because at that point I get in trouble, and you discipline yourself and you remove from yourself the temptations that are going to bring about that wrong action within you. This process I've just described is not a Christian process, is it? That's just a human process. That's as much a process in the world as it is in the church. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, quite often, that's all that there is in the church too, huh? All we do is discipline ourselves and avoid the temptations. Now, I'm not saying we should not avoid temptation. Indeed, we ought to flee from temptation. I'm not saying we ought, to have, we ought not have discipline. Indeed, we ought to be a disciplined people. But what I'm saying is, if over the course of your interactions with the things of this world, there is in your heart a clear and an obvious problem, it is not enough to discipline yourself, your flesh. It is not enough to simply avoid the temptation. You've got to deal with the problem in your heart. 
And if we don't have the capacity through the Holy Spirit of God in Christ to deal with the problem in our heart, then we have nothing that the unbelieving world does not have and our religion is vain. But there is something more, isn't there? The solution within the unbelieving world is discipline and avoidance. To avoid those things in this life which activate my sin nature. So if food or drink merged with intemperance in a man's heart causes gluttony or drunkenness, they simply say avoid the food or drink. They don't ever deal with the intemperance. They just say avoid the food or drink. If certain people or places merged with anger in a man's heart causes rife, strife, wrath or strife, they say, okay, avoid those places, avoid those people. That's a good, a good wise model. But, but is that enough? Are we, can, can we just leave that, that, that propensity in our heart just to lay dormant? When's it going to pop out? Has there actually been a solution? If certain stimuli merged with a desire in a man's heart cause adultery or fornication, they say, okay, avoid the stimuli. Well, that's good. Is it enough? Or is there a way to solve the problem in your heart? If this is all I do, if my only source of power is the same tactic that every unbeliever uses, maybe even simply calling everything in life that tempts me inherently bad or inherently sinful, then I have no more power than the unbeliever. And because I call more things sin than the unbeliever, I'm now stripping myself of, of a lot more than them, right? I'm stripping myself of any number of things that I am actually free to do if only I could control my heart because I'm calling so many more things sin. But I'm actually not realizing any more power, any more effectiveness unto, unto any sort of victory than the unbeliever themselves. Society calls stealing wrong, so do Christians. So society avoids stealing through discipline. Christians avoid stealing through discipline. Society does not call sexual immorality wrong, generally speaking. But Christians do. So society allows the giving in into that immorality. They don't discipline themselves until the point where they feel like they've crossed some line. Those in Christianity avoid immorality through discipline. And presumably, if society again decided that sexual immorality was indeed wrong, they would begin to discipline themselves, and then the Christian and the, and the unbeliever would look no different again. But the question is, is there something different in their hearts? Is it really just that we've defined more things as sin in our lives? And so we're simply disciplined in more areas of our lives. And so we just resort to calling a bunch more things evil because they lead to temptation and then to sin. And here's the thing. We know that that's not true, right? You know that that's not true. That's, that, that's, not, the, that's not the whole story. You know that the Bible speaks of a power greater than our sin. We sang this morning, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We know that the Bible speaks not of simply maintaining, maintaining our sin nature, but freedom. Freedom. If the Son of God will make you free, you shall be free indeed. And yet for all this, in many Christian homes, in many Christian churches, the solution to the struggles with material things is simply to cut them out of our lives through discipline rather than to deal with the manifestations of sin in our hearts. We completely ignore the problem of the heart that led to the sin or the temptation to begin with. And let me just say one more thing about this before we move on. Many people that walk away from the faith do so because they see Christians as just people who are determined that more things are sinful and are just disciplining themselves in more areas of their lives and so having less fun than the unbeliever, right? You just have to give up more things to be a Christian. And again, the Bible, that's a foreign concept to the Bible. From a biblical perspective, this is simply not true. And yet, in many of the lives of the young people who walk away from the church, frustrated or resentful, this is all they've ever experienced. All they've ever experienced in their lives is you do something, 
You, you, you have no means by which to control your interaction with some element of the material world, so you're stripped from that element of the material world, and it's removed from you, and you don't get to uh, have any sort of uh, interaction with it anymore because it led you to sin or, or you sinned through it. There's no power of Christ that they've experienced to overcome their sin nature. There's no capacity to live in the good things that this world has to offer without sin because the danger of sin lies too close to them. There's no understanding of the relationship between the sin nature, the redeemed nature, the, and the body which houses them both. Remember, if you're a believer, you house them both, right? That means that every day there's an interplay between the sin nature and the redeemed nature in you because you have them both. There's no drive to please the Lord while simultaneously finding joy in this life. Instead, you just strip from yourself the joy of this life to avoid the manifestations of your sin nature. This is cold, hard discipline, isn't it? The cutting off of every earthly pleasure because of a misguided understanding of its relationship to sin. Thinking that we, that, that those things in in, of themselves are the source of sin rather than the source of bearing out what's actually in our hearts. And so we fight against the things which our sin nature perverts rather than fighting against the perversion of our sin nature. May I say that again? We end up fighting the things which our sin nature is perverting rather than fighting the perversion of our sin nature. And when Christianity simply becomes that cold, hard discipline, it loses, we lose access to the consolations of this life without any of the power and the relationship and the transcendent joy that is intended to replace it. And then we wonder why we are, here's our word, discontent. And then we wonder why our children walk away. But see, here's the thing. It is not which goeth into your mouth that defiles you. It is what comes out of you that defiles you. It isn't the food you're eating. It's the response of your sin nature to that food. It isn't the amusement you're engaged in, but the response of your sin nature to that amusement. And please don't take that last statement as a statement of libertinism. It's obvious that there are certain lines which, when crossed, cannot do anything but engage my sin nature. There are certain places, certain amusements, certain determinations, certain things that I can put into my body or, bring, or allow to, to enter into my senses that cannot but produce sin, right? There's, there's really no way around it other than some particular and very unique grace. And so those are the things that we look at and we say, I, there's just no way around that one. That one's, that one's done. That one's gone. We don't do that. We don't say that. We don't go there. We don't think those things. We don't listen to that. We don't watch that because it will inevitably produce in me what I know is wrong because my sin nature, I mean, it, like we said, it, it's, it, it's still there, right? So this is not, I'm not, this is not a call to, to libertinism. Certain activities, certain substances, certain entertainment choices, certain associations, certain people, so that we can rightly question whether any can step into certain choices without engaging this in nature. But what I seek to draw out of this distinction between the things that God has created in this life and the things which God has built into the core of us as human beings, which in themselves are not wrong and not sinful, is the way that thus the things which are already in our heart, our sinful hearts, can twist and can pervert those things to become sinful to us because of what is in us, not because of what is in it. It's not what is in the food. It is what is in me. And if we understand this relationship properly, then we will rightly realize that Christianity is not just a heightened system of lifeless discipline, just like the unbelieving world, wrapped in a veneer of religious thoughts and actions. Instead, Christianity is a thriving relationship which has the capacity to overcome this in nature, provide new stimuli, new activities, so that what I before could not do without invoking my sin nature and so falling into a fleshly response, I perhaps can do now 
in the Lord, sanctified by the word of God and prayer without ever invoking my sin nature. And if I can't, then I step outside of it. But as I step outside of it, I don't do so in discontent, thinking I've lost something. I step outside of it in order to gain something, in order to gain the better. Knowing that anything and everything that is right for me in this life, God has provided for me and I can enjoy righteously. And that's a whole different perspective on the Christian life, isn't it? I am thus freed. I'm freed to enjoy the things that God has created in this world without stepping into the flesh. To discern this rightly on the basis of whether or not I can do this thing without a work of the flesh being invoked in me. And if I can, I'm free. And if I can't, then I don't want it. And I'm content. So that we would live in the standard that Paul establishes in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore ye eat, or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do it in the spirit. Is it invoking a flesh response in you? Well, then you've got a decision to make. Is it possible to engage in this activity without invoking a flesh response? If so, then what's going on in your heart that a flesh response is being invoked by that thing? If not, then you avoid it, but you don't see it as a loss at that point. Because if there's no way that you can engage in that without a flesh response, then you don't want it. Because you want to glorify the Lord and you want to walk in His light. And you know that that's where joy and contentment lie. Such is the joy and the liberty of the Christian life that while the precepts touch not, taste not, handle not, as Paul described in Second Chron uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, have a show of wisdom and will worship and humi humility and a neglecting of the body. So those things, touch not, taste not, handle not, they have this shadow of wisdom. There's a shadow of wisdom in that, in, in the neglecting of the material, presumably in deference to the spiritual. But these things are by no means meant to define a functioning Christian relationship with God, functioning Christian life. And many times these things are more rooted in the carnal nature of simple, impersonal, cold, hard self-discipline than they are the spiritual nature of a man whose whole priority and love in this life is whatever he puts in his hands, whatever he does with his feet, whatever goes into his mind, however he uses his time, would be to the glory of God at that moment, in that context, and among those people. And with this as the foundation, give it a 35, 40 minute introduction if you want to call it that, we step into 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. This passage is still within the context of Paul's exhortation that servants would submit to their masters and the warning to withdraw from those teachers who would, by omission or commission, teach otherwise because the doctrine of submission is a doctrine which is according to godliness. And the man or the woman who can live in the doctrines of godliness in complete contentment is a man or a woman who has found great gain. Not... The man with the greatest material wealth, he's not the one that's necessarily found great gain, but the one that has found godliness with contentment. The happiest men and women in the world are those who can live within the scope of this call unto godliness, regardless of what that would ask of them, with the contentment of understanding God's design and God's blessings. See, because you came into this world with nothing. No matter how wealthy you are today, you didn't bring it in, uh, into the world with you. Even if you inherited a bunch of money from your parents, it didn't come into the world with you. It was there waiting for you. You didn't bring a presupposition of authority into this world. You entered into this world and it afforded you or did not afford you various things, but you brought none of them in with you and you will take none of them out with you. 
If you are a master, your authority does not carry over from your business into past the grave. If you are a servant, a slave, the subjection does not carry over into the life to come. If you're rich, your riches don't follow you into eternity. If you're poor, your poverty doesn't follow you into eternity. To this end, having those things necessary for the body, having food and having raiment, Paul says, let us be content. We've been promised nothing more. There is nothing more in this life we truly need than that we are fed and clothed. And the question is, why would Paul draw this line at food and raiment? Why is it food and raiment? Why doesn't Paul say, just be content? Just be content. I don't have food today, just be content. I don't have clothes today, just be content. Why food and raiment? Why draw the line here? Well, the reason why, I believe, is because food and raiment is a biblical presupposition. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment, clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. In other words, that's what unbelievers do. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This passage comes following our Lord's exhortation that we would lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth, because where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And one might say, sure, don't lay up treasure on earth, but how can I live? How can I eat? How can I have the basic necessities if I don't lay up treasure on earth? To which the Lord gives this amazing, amazing promise that if we will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we do not need to take one thought toward our provision. God will take care of that for us. That's a huge promise, isn't it? The Lord will provide. So then Paul takes for granted that you have food and raiment. He takes that for granted because Jesus said you can take that for granted as long as you're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're cared for if you're seeking first the kingdom of God. So, the fact that you are cared for, be content. The question then is this, can that be enough for you? Can that be enough for me? Is it enough that I have what I need? Or must I have more? Is it enough to be well, to be provided for? Or must I have more possessions? Must I have more authority? Must I have more autonomy? Must I have my freedom? Must I have my dreams? Must I have my wants? Must I have my desires or else I am not content? Or can I be content? Can I live godly and contented? Can I obey the Lord, reflect the Lord to others, and joy in the Lord? Can I leave the rest to God? The simple question, I suppose, being this, are you a content person? Everything in society drives us toward a state of discontentment. Advertisement taps into the human propensity toward discontentment in all of their advertisements, right? To sell their products. Politicians tap into the human propensity toward discontentment to convince you to vote for them on their policies. Entertainment taps into the human propensity toward discontentment to erect a fantasy world where you can live out your desires that you don't have in this life. Live vicariously through someone else or through some fantasy world. But how about you today? Are you content? Do you live in contentment? Having food and raiment, are you content? Content to live a life of godliness, whatever might be asked of you. And this is where I seek to merge all the principles I taught previously with the principles of contentment. And you say, Pastor, here you spent all of this time telling me that I can enjoy the things of this world. And then you say somehow that's relevant to 
Paul saying, having food and raiment, be, be content. I want to draw you not to that element. That element went much deeper than this contentment principle. I want to build, as I would build, the principle of competition or of how I eat food on top of the principles that I just described. I want to build contentment on top of this bottom layer of principles as well. There is a method to my madness, believe me. See, I live in a society that has so much. I'm not preaching to people who might wonder if they're going to have food tomorrow. It's not my audience. I'm not preaching to people who only have food and raiment. That's not my audience. So in a society that has so much and has access to so much, how do I know if I'm content? Are you content, I just ask. Yeah, I'm pretty content. How do you know? How do you know that you're content? See, because we're going to go out here and there's no one that's only going to have food and raiment, right? There's no one that's even going to test that hypothesis. What if I only had food and raiment? There's no one here that's going to go sell everything that you have other than food and clothes to see if you can be content with it. So how do we test that hypothesis? Am I content? How do I answer that question in myself? And in consistency with the principles I've already taught you, let me just tell you that the default answer is not simply to sell everything you have but clothes and food. It is not to only have base necessities and so that you're not a good Christian if you own stuff. Because anything more than that is regarded then as a temptation unto some sort of discontentment. This is like the person who simply disciplines their flesh response without removing the object of temptation, uh, uh, by removing the object of temptation. You're removing the thing which evidences the problem. You, you, you recognize discontentment within you, so you sell everything that you like so that you can prove to yourself that you're not discontent and you're just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. You're not actually dealing with what's going on in your heart that's bringing about discontentment. The fact of the matter is, contentment is not a product of how much I have or how little I have, is it? It's not. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are the most discontent people you will ever find. Humans have this sickness within us, this grass is always greener sickness. No matter what you have, there's always something better. No matter what you've achieved, there's always something more to achieve. The grass will always be greener on the other side of the fence. We look at what we have, no matter how little or how much, and we look at what we don't, and we want it, don't we? You want it. Proof of this is in your children. I think this illustration is coming up next week, too. But you've seen it before, right? Child comes up before Christmas and says, if I can have that, I'll never ask for anything else again. And they believe it in the same way I believe it when I'm looking at that thing in the store thinking, man, if I had that, I'd be good. I'd be good. A few weeks later, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's just what it is now. You've enjoyed it. It's good. But, you know, there's that new thing. There's that other thing. There's that next thing. You start to get that bug. start to get the itch. It's been a little while since you've had something new, so you start walking through the store. You start looking at the next thing. It's never going to end, is it? So you, sell, so you sell the things that you have because you're realizing you're discontent and you get rid of it all. And then you're content, right? Mm-mm. So you double your hours at work so you can buy the next thing and then you're content, right? Uh-uh. See, because it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. It's what's in his heart. How do you know whether you're content? No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you improve, it could always come crashing down. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you improve, there's always something else to gain. 
all of our efforts, all of our learning, all of our intentions. We can spend our whole lives seeking for something in the world to make us truly content, but the problem is the things of this earth are fleeting there only for a time. There's no true contentment to be found in them. You know that. We deceive ourselves all the time, but you know it. These things will come. They will go. Even great men who build great things will at the last be forgotten. And if they're not forgotten, they'll at the last be redefined. Men whose statues have been up for 100 years in this country are now having their statues torn down and being redefined. He was a hero, now he's a racist. Tear him down. Blot him from the history books. All of his efforts, no matter how much good he did, gone now because we've redefined him. Those things don't last. Legacies don't last. You work hard to provide a future for your family. You improve yourself through practice and learning. You invest in things to secure your own comforts. Even in success, there's always something more, isn't there? Pastor, have you come to preach hopelessness? No. I've come to preach perspective. Perspective, okay? Things are not sinful. Success is not sinful. Owning things, aspiring unto things, desiring things. This is a consolation within the scope of this life given to us by God, the God who created us. But as we spoke of earlier, those things can become sin to me if the nature of my own heart leads me unto a discontentment that drives my desires and my aspirations and my accumulations. What drives you? This is the question that only you and God can know. You have stuff. Is it okay to have that stuff? Is it not okay to have that stuff? Are you doing right by having that stuff? Are you not doing right by having that stuff? Are you doing right by buying that thing? Are you not doing right by buying that thing? Where's your heart? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. It's a question that only you and God can know. Is your desire for that thing, no matter how small or how big, no matter how cheap or how expensive, that person, that situation, that life, that milestone, is your desire driven by the deeper issues of sin as it has interacted with that thing in your heart? Or are you properly situated to godliness and contentment so that you can enjoy that thing in its fullest in the Lord? Has that thing that has gone into you produced sin as it has interplayed with what is inside of you, or are you okay? Is your desire unto that thing or that lifestyle or that context filtered through godly contentment, or is your relationship with God trying to be filtered through the desire for that material, emotional, or religious end? And the reason why we need to walk through all of that foundational principle is because it's so easy to get caught up in this idea that I get up here and I exhort you, you got to be content. And we all say, amen, pastor, we need to be content. And in some ways, it's easy for you to then leave. And you can leave even with every desire in your heart to find and to have this contentment, to attempt to make this happen. But then you start to just tear things away from yourself and deny these pleasures. But you still feel that discontent. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be content. And these things, uh, I, I'm not content. And, and, and so I just need to strip more or I need to buy more. Or I need to do this thing. And you're just putting Band-Aid after Band-Aid after Band-Aid on a wound that's just gaping and gushing. You try to make it happen by denying yourself a pleasure or by disciplining your spending habits, or by making this happen by stifling your emotional draw to some happily ever after. And you walk away feeling like all you've done is denied all the things that you really want and you're not happy and you're not content. And you think that for this denial, living in this place of discontent, unhappiness, you're somehow closer to God, except that you're supposed to be content with it. So you're living in this unnatural place of dissonance. And that's not how God wants you to live. It's not what God has designed for you. It's not what God has, has created for you. Godliness with contentment is not about you denying what you want and settling, settling for what God wants for you. Godliness with contentment is about wanting for yourself what God wants for you. 
It is about prioritizing your desire for the Lord so that that overrides within your heart any propensity to be so drawn to the things of this world or so drawn to an emotional condition or a physical condition or a health condition or whatever it might be to be so drawn to that idol in your heart that you want that more than you want God. And if you're rightly related to God in your heart, then you can have those things without them becoming a problem to you. But if you're not rightly related to God in your heart, then you know what? No matter how much you have or how little you have, you're still going to have the same ugly monster rearing its head. You're not going to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish simply through personal drive, self-discipline, rote denial, pulling up your bootstraps, gritting your teeth and going for it. More than that, this is not what God wants of you. This isn't godliness. God doesn't want you to be unhappy God doesn't want, and, and, and that doesn't mean God wants to give you everything your carnal desires want, right? I hear that all the time at the jail. God doesn't want me to be unhappy. That's true, but, right? But God doesn't want you to have your carnal desires either. God wants you to be happy in him. God wants you to be completely happy in him. To overcome the sin nature and to live on that spiritual plane of godliness and contentment, where you have yielded your perspective on this life to God, where you have submitted your will to God's, where your desires are God's desires, where you live as if you are in Christ, buried with him by baptism into death, truly raised to walk in newness of life, and so you seek unto those things that are, by definition, newness of life. A life which is not just a religious carbon copy of the efforts of the world to conform to some moral code and to discipline themselves into it a life which is wholly invested in the Savior's finished work on the cross and the power of the Spirit of God in us to make us something new. And as with all areas of the life, so too with discontentment. You can't conjure up spirituality. It only comes through faith. You can mimic it. You can counterfeit it to a degree. But the only time that the determination to live dead to this world are accompanied by the rewards of that determination is when our heart is right. No Band-Aid is going to bring you that joy. No Band-Aid is going to bring you that contentment. You've got to do it God's way. It's a unique thing to live in a fallen body while living on a spiritual plane, isn't it? It's a unique thing to have within us both the carnal and the spiritual. It is hard enough living in denial of the flesh without attempting to do it without the help of the spirit, Christian. And perhaps you've been doing that today. You're discontent. Maybe it's material possessions. It's money. Things you want to buy are the kind of lifestyle you want to live. A dream job, a dream house, a dream boat, a dream car. Maybe it's not a material thing. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's emotional validation that you're discontent over. You're waiting for that Prince Charming to make all your dreams come true. You're waiting for that perfect physique which is going to fulfill all of the emotional issues within you. You're looking for that thing that's going to bring about self-esteem. You're looking for that longing to be filled You're pursuing that goal so that you can prove all the doubters wrong. You're seeking unto the emotional fulfillment that comes with vengeance, being angry, living in resentment or bitterness, punishing someone emotionally for what they've done to you. And you're seeking emotional fulfillment or validation in some way. And maybe in the times of deepest frustration, you purpose to discipline more earthly impulses. I've got to stop this. I've got to stop this spending. I've got to stop this emotional drive. I've got to stop, I've got to stop wanting this. I've got to stop uh, whatever it might be. And all it ends up being is the spiritual whack-a-mole where you've knocked that one down only to have it pop up here. And then you knock that one down only to have it pop up over here. And you knock that one down and two more pop up here and there. And it's not working. And that's little wonder because you're not doing it God's way. And maybe you live with it or maybe you've given up. 
And either way, the last word you would truly use to describe yourself, no matter how much you enjoy the things you have or don't have, is contentment. And so you say, I know I need to be content. The Bible says I need to be content. Let's be content. And then you try to be content, and then you're just whacking more moles, and it's not happening. And then you give up, or you just live in that guilt. You say it's impossible. And it's because you have no help, no spiritual power. It's because you're not dealing with the problem in your heart. You're just putting Band-Aids on all of the symptoms. You're just, everything that's coming in, it's being filtered through that sinful tendency in you, and it's going out sinful. And you've never stopped to say, what if I change the filter? May I propose that better way today? Stop going your own way and look to God in faith, not hoping that it will give you all of the things that your discontentment has always wanted, but believing and investing in the promise of God's kingdom and saying, God, I will truly believe that it is enough for me to have food and raiment. And that doesn't mean I'm going to deny myself anything all of the other things that this world might have to offer, but I'm going to filter them through this thing in my heart. And if I'm not there, if that is not where my heart is, then that is your homework. What's in your heart? Deal with your heart. Ask God to help you at the heart level, not at the level of the stuff you've got or the stuff you want or the stuff you think you need, the heart level. And in doing so, bringing this about, seeking first the kingdom of God from submission to love to everything in between, this will produce in you a godly contentment which will be for you that elusive thing which no material or temporal thing could ever give you, but which you want. And that's this great gain that 1 Timothy 6 talks about. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.